0: Well, today we're going to begin, really begin our sketches uh, talking about Adam, God's regent on earth. And last week, I just want to give you a quick overview of what we talked about last week because it kind of laid a foundation for our new series on Bible characters. And I explained my reasoning for doing the series to be a combination between how interesting and encouraging biographies are I mean, even if you pick up a biography of a secular person and just read about their life. Life is interesting. There's a lot of things that happen in life. But how much more interesting, the biblical characters, they can be richly rewarding. But even more vital reason for going back to Old Testament characters and studying them is it helps to establish a solid foundation for the Bible and our understanding of God It's divine author. You see, when you study the biography of a biblical character, you immediately are drawn into that biblical character's relationship with God and God's relationship with that biblical character. And as with any good narrative, you will begin to identify with characters in the story. And so that's why studying these Old Testament characters is is so refreshing and so encouraging. The Apostle Paul talked about this, and I think he was sold on it, as a rationale for studying the characters of the Bible, for he wrote in Romans fifteen four, for everything that was written in the past, I like that, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And who doesn't need hope, right? So going back into the Old Testament and studying the characters, because almost the entire Old Testament is written in narrative form. In fact, over 40% of the Bible is in a narrative form. And as we study them, they will bring us hope, and they'll teach us. So with that thought, let's go to prayer and commit our time into the Lord's hands. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we embark on this series of Bible characters and sketches about their lives and their interrelatedness with you and what you are doing with your divine plan, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, that you'd show us fresh and new things from your word. Father, many of us will be familiar with these these characters, will be familiar with some of the storyline, but God, we pray that you would open them up into a even new and broader vision of who you are and what you're doing on this earth and through the people that you use on this earth. Father, we commit our time into your hand this morning and ask for clarity that you would help us to get through the passages that we're going to look at as we begin to consider Adam, the first man, your regent over all the earth. Thank you for this time now in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. The verse that I used to kind of nail us to the floor in our study was Psalm 11.3 last week. I said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I have never been more aware of the fact that Bible-believing Christians, we are a remnant. We are a remnant today. We are not the... the greatest group of people on the earth, believe me, not by any stretch. And I used to think it was just my age, because I'm getting older, and as you get older, you you see things in a different light. It's not. It's not. The world is changing around us, and it's becoming more and more secular, I think, than it's ever been. So many today are without the kind of foundation that we can have through the Bible, to understand history, life, and even the purpose for living. And I spoke last week of the philosophic concept of postmodernity, and I don't want to get into philosophy here, but it's important that we understand the things that are driving our culture, the underpinnings of what are driving our culture. In postmodernity, they don't believe in absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. There's a refusal to believe that there might even be any type of validity to a meta-narrative. And I, I, I told you I went to this phenomenal resource. Everybody can get it. It's called Got Questions. <laughs> it's a great resource on the, on, on, online. You can just get it and pop in your question or look at all the questions that they answer. And this is what it had to say about postmodernity. I, I like Got Questions because it puts it on the lowest shelf, we can all grasp what they're saying. Listen to what it says about post-modernity. The concept of a meta-narrative is similar to a worldview. A worldview is something that gives meaning to life and the individual events that take place in our lives. A meta-narrative has the power to explain and purports to be true for all of life. Post-moderns, Generally, do not accept any overarching story that gives meaning to all of life. Instead, postmoderns believe and focus on a small individual narrative that gives meaning to each individual life. A meta-narrative speaks of absolute universal truth, applicable across the board. An individual narrative speaks of what is true for me which may not be true for you. So it gives meaning to my personal life, supposedly. Postmodern thinkers reject metanarratives because they reject universal truth. There are no universals anymore. It's come down, you know, we talk about the me generation. Well, this is the epitome of it. Everybody's siloed off into their own little selfie. Postmoderns view a single narrative giving meaning to all lives as an impossibility. But the problem is, and this is hilarious, it's ironic, that postmodernism then becomes quickly another meta-narrative because the truth that there is no absolute truth becomes a meta-narrative that gives meaning to postmodern thinkers. Circular, isn't it? I'd rather go with the scripture. As our meta narrative, and I'll explain why. It's not difficult to see how postmodernity and the philosophy behind it would lead to a sense of chaos, and the individual becomes very small, like a tiny ship out on a horizonless ocean, being thrust one way and then another, because they're confused and weary with no land in sight. There's nothing solid holding them up. You see, the Bible describes people like this very aptly in Ephesians chapter 2, saying that they are living in the world without God and without hope. When you jettison God, out goes hope. Everything becomes meaningless. The human condition in a world where God has been set aside in exchange for technology obviously will bring this sense of smallness that cannot be described more aptly by anyone than Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was a scientist, atheistic. Could I have that uh, pale blue dot? And You might have to turn off the lights here because I want people to be able to see it. Okay, you see the pale blue dot, folks? See it in that sunbeam there? Listen to this. NASA scientists, NASA scientists told the Voyager 1, to turn around and take a final picture of the earth from 3.7 billion miles away from the sun. That is us, 3.7 billion miles away. A tiny, pale, blue dot. And when Carl Sagan saw that in 1990, he said this, Look at the earth in this picture, a pale blue dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. And on that dot, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives, every act of human heroism or betrayal, the sum total of human joy and suffering, thousands of confident religious ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every kind of king and peasant and mother and father and hopeful child, inventor and explorer, moral teacher and corrupt politician, every saint and every sinner in the history of our species lived there. On a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, They were momentary masters of a fraction of a blue dot. Our planet is a lonely speck in the vast and enveloping cosmic darkness. Without God and without hope in the world. Compare Sagan's bleak nihilism with David's words, even though he too felt small as he gazed into the night sky, but David recorded his wonder that the creator of such a vast universe is concerned about us as humans when he wrote, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth! Who has displayed your splendor above the heavens? And when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas. That's Psalm 8. It was read for our call to worship today. You see, it's not difficult to trace the origins of the human predicament in the 21st century. When you look at people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that famous Soviet dissident that I quoted last week, the old people, he gathered them together when he was a young boy, and they explained to them, to him why the horrors of the communist regime fell upon Russia very succinctly very clearly they just said men have forgotten god that's why all this has happened you don't have to be a nasa scientist to get that understanding and you 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 have to understand that this is a stark unvarnished truth and it was true for russia as it is true of the west today we are in decline people massive decline and it's because it's, 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 it's related to the way we've pushed God away from us to forget him. Biblical illiteracy is pervasive as people have thrown off perceived shackles of God and turned away from his divine revelation, the Bible. And the people who study such things have told us that only one-fifth of people attending evangelical Protestant churches. Now, I need to explain what that means. Evangelical means people who believe the evangel, the, the gospel, okay, that Jesus Christ came to earth, the Son of God, God incarnate, and died on a cross as a substitutionary atonement, a payment for sin, that whosoever believes in him will have life and never perish. That is the gospel. So that's the evangelical part. Protestant is different than Catholic. Remember the Reformation, that that big thing we celebrated a couple years ago, Martin Luther and all that, when the Protestants came, they protested, came away from the Catholic Church. Okay, because of the Evangel, okay, because of the gospel. And you see, those people attending such churches today, only one-fifth of those people attending have a biblical worldview. Only one-fifth, that's 22 or 21% of those people, actually understand the things that I'm going to be talking about in these character sketches. And within the 18 to 29-year bracket, those that are 18 to 29 years old, only 2%. Only 2% have a biblical worldview. A total of 54% of U.S. adults are notional Christians or nominal. We used to call them nominal Christians. Their religion is only skin deep. It's only true on Sunday when they come to church. Or probably more true on Easter and Christmas. Right? That's when they go to church. 54, 54%. That's amazing. Now I'm compelled to lay down some rudimentary truths to endeavor to provide you with an overarching view of the Bible. And the general flow of the story within the Bible. So few people really understand it. And I'm so grateful that God in his, in his wisdom took me off of the east side of St. Paul. That's right, we grew up just east of here, both Mary and I. And he thrust us all the way over to a tiny speck, talk about a pale blue dot, an island in Indonesia, and we were with a very primitive group of people that had no idea God existed. They were animists, they worshipped the spirits behind... Um, living trees and waters and and certain animals and so forth. And they they made sacrifices and offerings to these animals to appease them so that they'd be able to live safely on their little island of Taliabo. And Mary and I went there to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. And we went there to bring them that, and we realized we have got to start in the beginning because they don't even know who God is. They had creation myths. They believed that people came from the sweat of a great rock. The rock sweated, and then it formed into the form of a man and a woman. Another idea they had of creation, they had a couple of them, and our idea they had was the sun and the moon got together, and the offspring is us. Our question to them, just to mess with them, was, where did the rock come from? Where did the sun and the moon come from? Got them thinking. Believe me, got them thinking. They had never been challenged in their worldview. And then we began in Genesis 1.1, and we taught them through the Old Testament narratives to the life of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. Taught them for six months, and there is a marvelous turning to the Lord. And there are thousands of Christians there now who were once animus, All glory be to God. What an incredible time. But I'm passionate about this, if you can't tell. (laughs) Even before the creation, we need to understand that before the beginning, it just doesn't tell us the whole story. Before the beginning, Eric Sowers said this, Before the beginning, behind the course of time, there stand eternal realities. Behind the course of time, another way you could say it is before the beginning. There stands eternal realities, and it's quite easy to see when reading the first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God. If it says in the beginning, God, then God was already present before the beginning. Stands the reason that He was existing in what we term eternity past and then in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth and he filled them all okay and the bible tells us that story then it takes us all the way to the consummation and you come to the end of the physical universe as we know it and we go into eternity future and so you've got bookends eternity past and eternity future John 1 explains it by saying, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so we know that God is personal. It's not some little speck, a mote of dust, and that we're all just, stamps came to be. God is personal. He is a creator, and he created us after his own image. And we can relate to him because he is a person. Oh, man, am I talking heresy to postmoderns and secularists. They'd never, this is, this is mumble jumble. This is all pie in the sky, hope I wish, wish I may, wish I might kind of rhetoric. No, it's not. It's truth, and it's been divinely revealed to us in the Bible. You see, there, there was a lot that was going on before the beginning. Jesus said, My Father loved me before the foundation of the world. Today, we're going to find out that even in the creation story, the Trinity, the triune God, was communing with one another. They said, Let us make man in our image. There was communication before the beginning between the members of the Trinity of God, who is God. It's just mind-boggling, people, but this is what's revealed to us in this this word. How can anybody think somebody made this up? Who would make that up? How can you go before something that ever was? Who would ever think of that? No, you'd come up with the sweat of this big rock came and it formed man. You'd come up with ideas like that. And so I gave you a very simple help to see the meta. Narrative of the Bible. Could I have the grand theme slide, please? So if you look at the scripture in a big overview, you can see that in Genesis 1 through 11, you can see the need of redemption is laid out. Okay, that, That's the fall. It talks about the creation, yes, but then the fall and the sin and the separation from their creator all the way up to Genesis 11. Then in Genesis chapter 12, Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you have the channel of redemption because you're introduced to Father Abraham and the, the, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is where we got the oracles, the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's also the channel through which Messiah came. And then, of course, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the purchase of redemption. That is the story of Jesus, his sinless life, and in his arrest, and his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, but oh, glorious news, three days later, he was raised again. Death had no power over him. So the purchase of our redemption. And then Acts shows us the proclamation of that redemption. Those, those scared disciples, they were hiding out in the upper room when Jesus came and showed himself to them, and when Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see him. And Jesus said, come here, Thomas. <laughs> oh, man. I want to see that replayed over and over again. That, that is one thing I want to watch when I get to heaven, Thomas putting his hand. You know, it, it's just amazing. And those scared disciples then went out, empowered by the Holy Spirit who came on the day of Pentecost and filled them with power to witness, went out, and they proclaimed the gospel. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, and that whoever believes in that will have eternal life and not perish. They proclaimed it, and you see it all through the book of Acts. Also, something that's very interesting is it's not just one individual sharing the gospel with another individual. You see them gathering in groups, and the Apostle Paul, who is the church planter par excellence went about and formed these groups called local churches with elders that would lead them and deacons that would serve with the elders. And they became little units, autonomous in themselves, but interdependent with one another. It's a beautiful story. You read the book of Acts in the New International Version. Read it in one sitting. It's like a fast-moving novel. It really is. It's exciting. But then we go on to the epistles, And we see the explanation of redemption because those churches, even though they might have gotten saved, they needed needed some background. They needed to understand what was taking place. Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians, amazing. Romans, the book of Romans, 13 epistles Paul wrote, and there are more, the pastoral epistles and the general epistles. They all explain what redemption is all about. And then you come to Revelation, one of my favorite books. Daniel and Revelation, and you have the consummation of redemption. And there you have the meta narrative. And we fit right in the part of the explanation of redemption. We're right in the part right now between Jesus' first advent and his second coming. He hasn't come yet. If he has, please let me know because we all missed it. He hasn't come yet, but he's coming, and I believe it's soon. And that's your meta narrative, and that helps you. So, the book of Genesis, back to Genesis now, okay? That was written by Moses. I'm starting the main message right now. I'm done with my review. That was start, uh, written by Moses after Israel's de- deliverance from 450 years of Egyptian slavery. I don't know if you knew that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 didn't start in the beginning, okay? It started approximately. 1,450 years after the beginning, okay? It was written, I think, at approximately 1445 B.C. And Moses is said to be the human author of the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's referred to as the Torah, okay, or the law. Or in the New Testament, in Greek, we call it the Pentateuch, taken from the Greek word penta, which means five, and tukos, which means volume, Volume. so a five-volume book. And it was written after the Exodus, after they had been in slavery for 450 years, this is after the time of Abraham, Moses brought them out of their captivity. You remember the Passover. They went into the wilderness for a while, and they went to Mount Sinai, and they received the law, From Moses, God, through Moses, gave them the law, the Torah, and Exodus was written. It's a documentation of their history from the beginning with creation all the way to Deuteronomy 34, last chapter in Deuteronomy, and the recounting of Moses' death. So it covers all the way from from creation all the way to the death of Moses, and obviously the 34th chapter had to be penned by somebody else, probably Joshua, because it talks about Moses' death. Now, the exalted place given to humanity in Genesis 1 presents a sharp contrast, doesn't it, to the popular worldviews of both ancient and modern cultures. You see, in ancient Near East, where gods were thought to control the agricultural cycles, and believe me, Israel, when the Pentateuch was written, was surrounded by polytheists, pagans, that believed in many, many different types of gods. And those gods controlled the agricultural cycles, and so they made offerings to them to appease them so those agricultural cycles would, would work out well and they'd get a great harvest, and so there they, they could live. The taliabo, who Mary and I worked with, did such a thing. And whenever they were sick, they'd make offerings and sacrifices to the powers behind their sickness and so forth, appeasing them, not worshiping appeasing them, they are scared of them, they are slaves all their lives. People were created to be these God's slaves, they're laborers, and that's the way people viewed God, the polytheists, and still today the animists that are in the world. Now in the modern world, from which all gods have been banished, people feel insignificant in the immense cosmos, just like I showed you. we We're just... Dust. And I think they refer to us as stardust, right? Some of those astronomers that don't believe in God. We're just stardust. Genesis brings a corrective to each perspective. It challenges both the polytheistic worldview of primitive cultures as well as the naturalistic or atheistic worldview common to so many in our modern world. Francis Schaeffer, I think, said it best. He said, he is there and he is not silent. Thank God. From that tiny blue pale dot, shouts God, and he said, I am. Look at me. I am. In the written word, but even more so in Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of the Father. Oh, man. I just get so excited about this. It challenges both worldviews, the polytheistic and the atheistic. And Genesis is where we begin. And strangely enough, the first person of our character sketches happens to be the first person ever created, Adam. And if you look at your bulletin, we're going to look at about four uh, aspects of this character. We're going to look at the preparation for Adam, the presentation of Adam, the predicament of Adam, and the peccability of Adam. Now, you're going to have to look up that last one, the peccability, but you'll see what I'm talking about when you look that up. The preparation for Adam, when when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and and the lead-up to the introduction of Adam as God's creation of the first human being, it's quite obvious that God is a God of order. From the introduction of Genesis 1-1, with the explanation of the situation in verse 2. Just turn there, Genesis chapter 1. I'll read the first two verses to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2 says, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So you've got these two verses that just kind of Take you by surprise. There's a very precise, determined flow when you move into chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And it's the days of creation. You see, that, that formless and void is Tohu Va Bohu, Hebrew words Tohu Va Bohu. And Tohu means without form, without form. And bohu means empty. But God did not leave the earth formless and without content. Because verse 3 and following all to chapter 2, verse 3, he tells us what he did with that formlessness and that emptiness. He basically filled it. Their structure and order as seen in the creation account. The literary genre of Genesis is historical narrative. It is a story, but it, it's history. And, and this is the introduction that we immediately see in verse 3. It begins with a what gr- grammarians in the Hebrew language... Just bear with me for a second because it's really important you know this, okay? Grammarians in the Hebrew language, they refer to the very first word, um, what do you have? I have then, in verse 3. Do some of you have and? And, okay, I think maybe King James or whatever. Okay, so that is called a vav consecutive. A vav consecutive, it's a conjunction in the Hebrew language. And it's used in narratives to show sequence, okay? Now now get this, it's very important. It shows sequence, It can be interpreted uh, through or uh, uh, translated by the words now, or it can be then, or it can be the word and. And it's used in the Hebrew literary genre of narrative to describe events that are happening in sequence. It's a sequential thing that's taking place. So if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, and verse 24, they're all represented in the NASV as with the word then, that vav consecutive. There's something happening here. Now, those of you who are old earthers, good luck, because this is moving pretty fast for old earthers. I personally am a young earth person. I believe about 6,000 years or so, and it's created with the appearance of age, okay? But that's not what I'm talking about today. We'll get to that. 1-3 introduces day one of the seven-day creation story. So verses 3, 6, 9, 14, 20, and 24 all correlate with the days of creation. Isn't that amazing? It just goes in a story. and then, and then, and then and then all the days of creation. And then the summary comes in 2-3 where we read this. Then, consecutive, okay, above consecutive, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Seven days. So, now it's important for us to take a breath again. If you haven't got anything from me yet as your pastor. I'm a big picture guy. Details freak me out. Okay, I don't know that's the way God has made me, but I love big pictures. It helps me to understand and grasp. I do go into detail, but I, I, I want you to understand this and get the big pictures of verses 3, 1-3, Genesis 1-3 all the way to Genesis 2-3. And it'll help you to understand the flow of the passage if you keep in mind how Elohim, that's the word for God, Elohim, it shows his power and his might, prepared the heavens and the earth, and then he filled them. You see, the six days describe the perfect and positive answer to the condition mentioned in 1-2. Genesis 1-2, we had Tohu, Bohu, right? Formless and void. Well, the rest of the days of creation shows us what he did with that. Can I have that slide, please? Here's another slide for you guys. Okay? On the first day, he created light and darkness. On the fourth day, correlating sun and moon, the light containers. On the second day, he created the sea and the sky. And correlating on the day five, he filled it with fish and birds. On the third day, he created the fertile earth and correlating on the 6th day he created land creatures and, and man it kind of gives you a picture of what he did with verse 2 the tohuva bohu and i love that because it helps us to understand these things and just as god prepared creation with both form and filling first preparing then filling so he set the stage For the crown of his creation, Adam, there is order and structure. You can can take that down if you will. God revealed in the creation of the heavens and the earth. When we step back and consider those six days of creation, how can we not see a magnificent display of God's character and nature? Why did he wait until day six and as the last act of his creative work to create man? Why did he do that? The entire work of his creative majesty sets the stage for the grand revealing of the ones created in his image. I said ones plural because male and female created he them. He prepared earth for mankind. He is a God of order and structure. God is absolute He is unconditioned by anything outside of himself, people. He is purely self-determined, independent. All of his acts have their origin within himself alone. He is completely independent and free. God exists completely independent and for his own sake and needs nothing else in order to be God. So why did he create the heavens and the earth? He already existed from before anything. He is eternal. Why create a physical universe? Eric Sauer, again, a favorite of mine, actually. He's a German director of a Bible school in Rhineland, Germany. He eloquently explained it like this. Listen to these words, okay? You're going to have to focus in a little bit. The spiritual laws of eternal being must be reflected in the natural world. Between the infinite and the finite, the ideal and the real, there must exist such. There's a relationship. Basic parallelism, that the visible becomes the clothing of the invisible, a symbolizing graspable by the senses of the transcendental. So he's talking about the invisible being observed by the visible. This is a fact underlying all symbolism, both in divine revelation and human thought. All created forms of life become concrete expressions of definite thoughts of God. Oh, one more time. All created forms of life become concrete expressions of definite thoughts of God and the universe become a universal reflection of the majesty of the eternal and earthly matter. Yesterday we were out walking with our kids, our grandkids, and we're we're up at um, Marine on Saint Croix, and we were walking on this path, and just every so often there is sprinkled just this brilliant red little wildflower, and I just you have to just stop. And look, at it wasn't all over like the ragweed, right? But but just these little red dots. God is so magnificent. And that's all part of his creation. It's all part of his self-revelation to us. You see, the Apostle Paul stated it like this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. We know somebody created us. For God made it evident to them. How did he do that? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made. So that, purpose clause, so that they are without excuse. Those Taliabo people worshiping demons and, and gods, of their own creating were completely without excuse because they had all of creation that signaled to them something greater than them exists. But Romans further on in chapter 1 says they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Why? Because they don't want personal accountability to a power greater than them. They want to be ruled by demons that they can appease with sacrifices. You see, that's that's the instinct of human beings and why we have idols in our lives because we think we can control them. You can't. You can't. There's a greater than that. That's the general natural revelation in the widest sense and what is meant to affect in man is worship. Now God created man as the crown of creation, I said. He's his regent. He was created at the end of the sixth day, a terminus of his creative works. It's true. But, therefore, man is also the crescendo of his creative works. It's the end of his creative works, but it's the greatest thing he did. Us believe it. Everything that God created before creating Adam was a preparation for the creation of humanity, the earth. The air that we breathe and need to have to breathe. The plants as food that we eat, and we need to eat the food. And the water that we drink, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars by which we mark time and understand the progress of time. All created prior in preparation for the creation of Adam. And then God placed Adam over his creation saying, Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And truly, man is God's regent over the earth. And this will become even more clear as we consider the presentation of Adam, my second point. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over... Wait a second, wait, 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 wait a second. He just said, let us make man. And then he said, let them rule over. So immediately there's intimation that there is male and female that he's referring to. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You know, people don't know who are male and who are female today, do they? Why? Because they've forgotten God. It's just that simple. This is not rocket science, folks. It says it in the very first chapter of the Bible, He created them, male and female, He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. You think God did not create Adam to be the regent of his creation? He did. And then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It's food for you. That's why I created it. I prepared this for you to eat. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, everything that moves on the earth which has life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. How do we understand what being created in the image of God means? Man, there's there's been lots of ink spilled over that topic, and I don't think that I'm going to get a point where I can really help you to understand every jot and tittle about that. Some people say that there's no way to determine that from the text. Others say that, well, if you compare scripture with scripture, you can figure it out. The first glimpse of Adam, the Hebrew word used for man, can refer to specifically a man. It can also refer to mankind as a species, same word. It can also refer to more narrowly the proper noun and name of the first man. It all depends on the context. Adam. And I think we can determine some things that show Adam, the first man created by God, with the imago Dei directly from the text. But also believe that comparing Scripture with Scripture, which we'll do throughout this series, you'll see even more understanding, you'll gain more understanding into this. It'll help us to fill out that understanding. So man was created both special and personal. Special and personal. This is both the crescendo of all creation. It came to its topmost point with the creation of Adam and Eve. In one way, and it's the terminus in another sense, because what follows is the rest of God on day seven. And therefore, it truly can be said that man is the crown of God's creation. The creation of man is special. It's unlike the rest of God's creative work. Here's a point. There's there's more space given to the description of Adam's creation than any other facet of God's creation account. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there is more verses given to the creation of Adam than any of the rest of his creation. You can read it in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, and Genesis 2, 7 through 25, all talking about Adam. Another point is that there's a change in language. Before there was God's simple command, the language of fiat, let there be, let there be, let there be. Now, in one twenty six, he enters into Consultation. He didn't do that with everything else he created. When it comes to man, it shows the highest honor of which he has dignified us. He held an exclusive divine council amongst the triune God, saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Another thing that shows us that man was created both special and personal is the name Yahweh is introduced in two seven? Yahweh, this is beautiful, in conjunction with the creation of man, a name that denotes God as personal and in relationship with man. Whereas Elohim, all the way up to two seven, the name for God is Elohim. The name used for God from Genesis one one to two six is a name designated of His great power in. Two seven. it says, then the Lord, that's Yahweh, his personal name. That's what he told uh, Moses when Moses said, who should I say send me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. Yahweh, I am that I am. Lord God, Yahweh Elohim formed man from the dust of the ground. Look at that verse with me for a second. Because there's something else that's so beautiful. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. There is nothing more intimate than a kiss. And here God forms man from the dust of the ground and condescends and breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. It says nothing of that to any of the other creatures. Nothing. Nothing. How intimate, how personal is this creation of man? And this cries out, personal, intimate. And therefore, when it came to the creation of man, God showed his personal side to his creation. Man was created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. I have six minutes left (laughs) for the Imago Dei. Oh, Lord, help us. Let us make man, verse 26 of chapter 1. Here the Trinity consulted among themselves, determining to make a man. And it's clear teaching the scriptures that humanity did not come into existence by random chance. It was determined. God intended to create mankind. In Isaiah 45, 18, it says, He formed the earth to be inhabited. It's important to understand that God did not create mankind because he had a need for love. Maybe you've been taught that. Oh, God God was so lonely that he created us that he could have fellowship with. Are you kidding me? How small is your view of God that he needs us? No. He was already completely independent and completely fulfilled within his triunity before he ever created us, there's another reason. And it wasn't for need or for love or companionship or even worship. He didn't need that. The triune God is self-sufficient and was so before the foundation of the world. John 17.5 says so. John 17.4, if you want to look at these verses. Acts 17.24-25. Is he a God made with hands? I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, the scriptures do not teach that. Then he says, let's make man in our image. Now, mankind holds that unique place in God's creative order precisely because God made him in his own image. This means that God made man with the remarkable ability to reflect various aspects of his own nature. None of the other animals do this. Humanity is absolutely distinct from the animal world in this regard. Image and likeness. Image is salam and uh, likeness is demuth. Both terms mean something similar but not identical to that of representation. Image, okay, salam, it can mean a thing that is used to represent something else like a statue or a replica of something, okay? And then likeness, demuth, means that that thing is something else, and not much so much a representative a representation of it, but it is a thing like something else, so you have there think of a a, a wax and a stamp that you stamp in the wax to seal a letter that's that's more like the image it, it it's a stamp it's a it's a, a a representation of it. And so Genesis shows us that Adam was created in his likeness. And the original readers of Genesis 5-3, just turn a couple chapters over, Genesis 5-3 says, when Adam, there his name is used, it's the same word for man, then Adam, now it's being used as a proper noun and name, had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Well, that's kind of interesting, that wording there, isn't it? It's very similar to what he created man, Adam, to be in his image and in his own likeness. So you see that this is being reproduced now and that was his intent. And so likeness and image, the true and better Adam, right? We sang about that this morning. This is so beautiful here. I'm going to end with Jesus because it always comes back to Jesus. I I just can't shake that, always. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of man in the image of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, all the way in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says concerning Jesus Christ. Verse three, he says, and he, referring to Jesus Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation. This is so powerful. The phrase exact representation in the King James it says his express image. Jesus Christ is the express image of the invisible God. That's why we love him. That's why we worship him. It states the fact that the son is both personally distinct from the father and yet literally equal to him of whose essence he is the adequate imprint. The Son of God is not merely His image, His character. He is the image or impress of His substance or essence. Last place, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And just listen to these words written by the Apostle Paul beginning in verse 45. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, the last man, became a life-giving spirit. Who do you think he's talking about? The true Adam, Jesus Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, Adam, in Genesis. And then the spiritual, Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, The first man, Adam in Genesis, is from the earth, earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthy in our first birth, We will also bear the image of the heavenly if we are regenerate and born again. Only two men in the world that matter. Adam in Genesis and Jesus Christ, the exact image of God. My last question for you and I'll close. Who are you in? Are you in Adam from Genesis or are you in Jesus Christ having been born again? Because if you're in Jesus Christ you will see the heavenly things. It's his promise. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for just these insights and these hints that you give us throughout your word between the first Adam and the last Adam. He's not the second Adam as if there might be more. He is the last Adam. He's the second man. But father, all things are summed up in Jesus Christ. He is the altogether lovely one. Oh God, let us worship, let us adore Him. Let us recognize Him for who He is. And let us thank Him for His sacrifice on our behalf. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.